0: Welcome to the Fantasy Inn Podcast, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn. Uh, Welcome back the fantasy and podcast this week we have a special panel episode where we'll be talking with two of the best editors in science fiction and fantasy about their craft and experience in the industry and so now you're here to hear them so i'll turn it over to them and let them introduce themselves and the types of editing that they do so diana if you want to go first
1: great uh, you know thank you travis for having me here i'm really excited to like talk about editorial uh, my name is diana Foe. I've been working in publishing for over 10 years, mostly in science fiction, fantasy editorial. So I've done work with the science fiction book club. I've worked at Tor Books and Tor.com as an editor for them for a very long time. And now I'm a story producer at Serial Box. So I've done a huge range of types of editing. Um, so I've worked as an acquisitions editor and a developmental editor. And we can talk more about those details and what that means later on in our conversation.
0: Yeah, and Nivia.
1: Sure.
2: Hi, I'm Nivea Evans. I am currently an editor at Orbit, which is part of the Big Five. I've been publishing for, I think, seven years at this point. It's really hard to keep track of because you like to forget (laughs) once you hit a certain point. (laughs) Um, It's... The kind of act like I guess I'm a commissioning editor. I tend to work on big structural edits and some minor line edits for fiction books. So developing them that way.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, And so we have mentioned these different types of editing. So I guess, first things first, I know there's a lot of confusion for our listeners. And if I'm being completely honest, a little bit of confusion with myself still as well, just exactly what those different kinds of editing are. So could we start out by talking about what those definitions are and what you actually do?
1: Do you want to start, Diana? Oh, Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of different types of editing, depending on you know, what kind of publisher you work at, depending on whether you're a freelance editor or you work for a house or if you work for a magazine. So I can understand why there's huge different understandings of what editorial work means. So to help divide it down, you know, both Nivia and I mentioned, you know, acquisitions editor and commissioning editor, and those can be actually slightly different Different depending on your house that you work at, and depending whether you work in US publishing or UK European publishing. So, so now to like really break it down, um, you know, typically an acquisitions editor is the editor that, you know, corresponds with agents and authors to ask for submissions for novels and short stories. They're the ones that are typically like the first reader of a project. And They would also make the argument, you know, to the publisher, like, this is why we should buy it for the house or for the magazine. Um, They may be the ones that do kind of like the cost analysis, like, will this be profitable if we publish it for the house? No, they would be the ones that like are really looking for like what is what are certain authors that we would love to have for our house? What are certain genres we need to use to help balance out our list? Um, those are the questions an acquisitions or commissioning editor might have. And so the big difference between that um, type of editing and developmental editing is that uh, an acquisitions or commissioning editor would be the person that just buys the project. You know? And once you know, they get the author and their work in the door, that project is then assigned to another editor for actual developmental editing.
2: Uh, Nivia, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, and the tri- the interesting thing is, in the U.S., most acquisition slash commissioning editors are both also developmental editors. So whatever you usually whatever you acquire, you take through from manuscript to finished project. And sometimes, depending on your level, like you could be an assistant editor or an associate editor, um, you may not acquire yourself, or you may. Um, Acquire like one book a season, and then you could you would be working with a more senior editor as a developmental editor. So you'd be second editing alongside of them, and the difference between so specifically with develop developmental work, <laughs> um, it's it's all about developing um, you know plot, character, kind of like those broad points of a manuscript that most readers respond to really well and that's and I that's usually what your acquisition editor focuses on and at some point they'll switch over to what we call line edits but our line edits are never about grammar which I think is a common misconception I am not your grammar queen I need a book. I have to look it up every time. Does this comma go there? But it's more of digging into the manuscript at a slower pace of, oh, does this character's decision actually make sense? Uh, Does this voice here, is it actually quite boring Like in this one section? That's that's line editing when you are an acquisition editor.
0: Yeah. And I think the actual grammar level, that would be copy editing. Is that what it's called?
2: That's when it goes into your um, managing editorial or your production editor. Um, and usually some of them do in-house, but most times it's freelanced out to copy editors and proofreaders, and they dig into all of that. And it's very fun to get those, um, those marked up manuscripts back because you're like, wow, I didn't even notice that. But it's not my job.
0: <laughs> I have uh, recently gotten back a marked up copy edited manuscript, and I thought I had a grasp of the English language, but <laughs> they showed me exactly how much I did not understand. Mm-hmm. Well, so moving on from there, I'm curious, uh, what kinds of common misconceptions do you encounter about editing, whether that's from fans and readers or just, you know, other parts of the industry?
2: I think the biggest one is that your editor wants to take over your work or that their their vision kind of supersedes yours, that's really not the case. It's almost never the case. Um, I always look at myself as a facilitator and editing as a conversation. And so I'm always looking for ways to suggest changes. If I say something's flat here, I might mention one or two changes, but nine times out of 10, my authors will do something completely different and better than anything I would have suggested. That's because it's their work. They know it better than I do. And it's something I see come up a lot, like on like with self-published authors, with people who are trying to figure out whether, or not to, whether to go traditional or self-published route of trying to figure out, well, this is my thing and I don't want them to take it away from you. Trust me, I do not want to. At all. I want this to be your baby. I want you to be happy with it as much as you can be. Um, so it's really interesting when they're like, well, they want me to change this and I don't want to then have a conversation. That's that's the whole editorial process for me. It's 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 starting the dialogue of you said this is slow. Why is it slow? Here's why. And just going back and forth and making it more robust and as as best as you can make it. Wow, that sounds Pat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, It's also really true. And, you know, I definitely agree with you. Uh, you know, a lot of people that haven't gone through um, developmental editorial experience would, you know, and, or have anxieties about it. They're usually based in like, oh, what if they're going to ask me to completely rewrite the book? Or what if they just don't like my book and are going to make all these changes that I don't agree with, but I have to, because the publisher bought the book. I'm like, that is not Mm. the case. Um, you know, the reason why we bought the book is because we loved it in the first place that, you know, we just want to make sure that it conveys the author's vision as strong as possible, you know? And another, you know, misconception I often get, uh, from fans, you know, and readers is that our jobs mostly consist of reading books. That's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it it's actually mostly consists of email and meetings. and then and and oftentimes the the hard work of uh, editing the text comes after the workday or on your weekend or squeezed in between a lot of different like meetings. So it's it's fascinating because uh, before I worked in editorial, I worked in sales and marketing. And the dramatic difference for me in, was that when I was in sales, I had so much more time to read just for fun. And then as soon as I be, you know, went into editorial, it changed. You know, I thought like I just spend my days like casually editing a manuscript, then casually reading submissions. And that was not the case.
2: <laughs> it's really funny because I found um, as I've moved up in my career, my reading goal for like Um, for fun reading shrinks so I used to try to do a book a a month and now I'm down to like one book every two months because it's I love reading science fiction and fantasy but it can feel a little bit like burnout um, when you're working in the area you love to read and then trying to read for fun and so I've found different tricks Um, I tend to read some books like years after they've made a splash so two or three years after it so it doesn't feel so much like work because I think people underestimate how much editors are reading other really hot books to kind of figure out oh what's making this book tick if you didn't see it on submission because like Mm -hmm. sometimes that happens or uh there's an author that's been published by another house for some time. And, you know, their next book hits it big. So you're trying to, as one of my coworkers says, you read at the book. So you kind of like skim through it really fast. And you're like, all right, I've read 50, 75 pages. I have the gist of what this is about. Um, Yeah. No, your reading life shrinks terribly, unless you find other things. Like I tend to read historical romance as a fun read because it's nothing like what I work on. And so it feels like the true escape that reading is. Um, So, yeah.
1: Yeah. That is also super hard. Like for a long time, graphic novels and manga was what I read for fun. And then Mm -hmm. I started buying comics for a little while and like, oops, that was the wrong choice. (laughs) (laughs) But now I'm reading comics again because I I work in a dramatically different type of publishing now. And that's... Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> makes it easier mm-hmm.
0: yeah and that, I mean that seems like I, I don't know this might be a tangent from straight-up misconceptions but a lot of people think that you know you get into editing because you know you're passionate about books and if you're working in something you're passionate about it doesn't actually feel like work right and so you're just so immersed in it the whole time but uh, <laughs> for people who can't see visual uh, everyone is shaking their heads right now.
2: <laughs> um, it's it's really funny because Yes, you're working on a manuscript and yes, you're working on a book and you feel so satisfied, like the satisfaction of holding a book you've like, like midwifed to the point feels so good. But there are a hundred different points surrounding that book. I hate writing copy. I'll say it. I say it on Twitter all the time. I usually write copy twice. It's stuff or three times stuff for in-house presentations, for galleys, for the final book. And that's one of the things. And sometimes it takes you a very long time to land on the copy because it's so important to how are you presenting this book? However, you're presenting that book is pretty much people's impression of it. Getting a title, I've spent six months working on getting the right title for a book. It's It consists of three words. Why was it so hard? <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's, it's the first impression someone has of that book. It's, it's getting your jacket brief right so your art team can get it together. It's all these little things that come into being the editor and basically a a project manager, um, mm-hmm. that's more than the text of the book, even though at the end in the final product, the text is the most important, making sure that part is satisfying for the reader. So they're, they want to talk about it. They want to pick up the next book. They, they want to go to and proselytize about it to the world. Like that's, that's the end result you want, but it's a long year
1: to get to that point. Right. You know, and, and also, one another misconception about editing, I think, is um, there. There's a lot to, that goes into editorial outside of working with the text. You know, including as you mentioned, Nivia, like positioning the book correctly, like having the right, um, you know, not just like the book copy, but having the right pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the things I, I tell people a lot about, like when it comes to like books, is that. It's the editor's job to sell the book to everyone in your publishing house so they can learn how to sell the book to the reader. So if you as an editor, you know, don't have like a vision or a plan or some sort of strategy about how you would explain why this book is so awesome to your sales team or to your publisher, it's gonna be that much harder for them to sell the book to, you know, to the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, And a lot of you're right. Like a lot of time is actually spent, you know, thinking about um, the market in different ways. And uh, I remember when I was a younger editor and just like having conversations with older editors and and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, they seem so so jaded, so cynical. And they weren't jaded or cynical. They still love their jobs. It's just they were super blunt and direct about what was successful, what wasn't successful, what works in the market, what doesn't you know as much, it, because they, they, they've just like grown to think that way, uh, not in uh, a way that like damages creativity or artistic intent or anything like that, but they're just being realistic and practical about how to explain something they love deep in their hearts to someone that has never read it before. And that's really, really hard.
0: Yeah. I mean, it kind of seems like a fine line to balance. Talking about these misconceptions, you've got the idea that an editor takes over the story and will like just totally write their vision over what the author's is. And then you've also got balancing in this market appeal. So I guess my next question is, how do you walk that line? How do you combine refining an author's vision to be the truest to that author's intent? And then how do you balance the market appeal?
2: To be honest, it comes at the moment of acquisition. If Mm -hmm. you don't think If you think a book is really, really going to struggle in the market, that's going to come through in your acquisition meeting when you're trying to position it and you're going to be asked about it. We sit in these meetings with our marketers, our publicists, our our publisher, and they are asking all of those questions because they know it's going to be their job to help us position that book for readers. Um and so if you if you're struggling from the moment of acquisition to figure out the market appeal that book isn't going to work. It it isn't even so much about author like cuz once you get into the to the actual editing and working with the author to shape their vision, you have a strong sense of where this book is going to sit even if you haven't fully defined it. You know, oh this is, this is a weird Western, so I kind of know who it's going to appeal to. That's going to be a little tricky. So what about the author's writing, character's um, world is going to push it a little bit further? You know, this is an epic fantasy. Epic fantasy is super common. It's the most popular subgenre in fantasy. And so you're looking at author vision, and it's really what they brought to it that's going to make it stand out. All of that comes from the moment you get that submission in and you're presenting it to the team so it's not even so much of balancing it of uh, cuz there's only so much an author can do in the text that <laughs> that will completely kill it in the market that you and and that it's a book
1: you've already acquired. Yeah. And one of the struggles too is that like and, and if you are uh, an author and you have a manuscript shopping around, I know a big author anxiety is that Oftentimes when editors reject something, they think, oh my gosh, I lost my chance forever. And oftentimes I read manuscripts that are brilliant and marvelous. And then I would go to the agent and say, I'm sorry, I can't buy this because my publisher doesn't think there's a market for it or we don't know how to position it. And that's a legitimate answer. Like that's mm-hmm. not saying that the book is bad. It's just saying that we might not be the right house for it. I might not be the right editor for it. And that's okay. There might be another house, another editor, another you know company that has that vision I don't have. And that's what makes publishing um, and editorial acquisitions, like kind of like an art as well as a science. Cause if you can't like think of that, sort of vision for the book, then it's just going to hurt the author in the long run if you try to buy it and then you can't sell it because you don't know how to talk about it. You don't know how to pitch it right.
2: Yeah. And then it's it's interesting because sometimes you see a book that is like really brilliant and you're you're just struggling to sit there. You're like, "How how can I make this work because the other side of it is like you're you're working with a lot of people who are passionate about it and sometimes you just fall in love with a book and you just sit there and you you're like, banging your head at it. And sometimes you can, a little bit of brilliance comes and a little bit of risk-taking comes. I always love when publishing takes risks because I think it can really help move the market in an interesting way where all Mm -hmm. of a sudden everyone's like, oh, that one book really worked. And then all of a sudden you see like a fire light under a bunch of other submissions and that's really great. But it is such a, it's such an interesting balance. One, I think an editor they said it on Twitter. is like, sometimes I read a book and if, and it's good. And if I don't have a vision for it while I'm reading it, it's not the book for me, because even if the book is brilliant, if I don't see how I can take it forward and make it the best thing it can be, I'm just hurting. It's going to be a struggle to edit. And it's going to be a struggle for the author to get launched because so much of, that in how support stems from your editor and how enthusiastic they are and like how they, how they present that book to people.
1: Yeah. And you're also right about like, sometimes other editors strokes of, of like genius can mm-hmm. just help like the genre in the, in the long run or an author in the long run. And just, you know, it's like rising tide floats all mm-hmm. boats. I, it, you know, for example, um, I think about all the time, um, you know, about how Jeff Vandermeer's career was really launched into mainstream fiction because FSG was like, let's just do a series of novellas and then Mm -hmm. publish them back to back across three months. That was brilliant, you know? Um, I think, and, and it's also something that, Authors, you know, can also discuss with their agents about when they're thinking about what kind of house might be a good one for their book. Like, look at how they place other authors and how they strategize, you know, a publishing path for them. And you know, and it's a legitimate question for like, you know, I have this all the time with agents if I'm looking at a project and, let's say, like it turns out like there's multiple offers on the table, and then I have to present like the vision for the book. No, the, you know, it, but those are like legitimate conversations that can really make or break, you know, a certain project. So, but because like they were, you know, FSG was so successful in launching uh, Jeff that way, it helped everyone else that was buying novellas. Mm-hmm. You know, it helped everyone else that was writing like this, like new weird, or writing fiction with like environmental concerns. It helped like dystopian in a weird way. For adults, you know, so it's just it's amazing to think about books that really, like, set, you know, the industry on fire in a certain way and how it, like, ripples out to help everyone else.
0: Talking about these risks, I am curious just how exactly do you decide when you can take one of those risks? I don't know how much the two of you are involved in the business side of things, but even on the creative side, like... When do you know, is it just when you think you have something extra special to bring to that particular manuscript and that's when you take the risk or uh, I don't know, what do you think?
1: I mean, it's like part serendipity, partly good timing and partly a bit of luck, you know, to be honest, when you think about like the huge risks, but to be realistic, if you ask any, you know, editor why you bought that book, they'll tell you it's because I can risk my career. I think it's worth risking my career to buy this book because it's really like if you're if an editor's books doesn't sell, it's going to affect them in the long run. They're not going to like stay at a house, you know, mm-hmm. if their books that they buy aren't making the publisher money. It's that's the hard, cold facts. So every time I buy a book, I'm like, am I willing to lose my job for this book? Cause that's what it comes down to. And it's, kind of, and I think that's also like a misconception that people might have about editorial is that we have all these like cushy jobs we have more job security than like, no. <laughs> but, you know, that's, nef- that's definitely not the case actually, but that really speaks to the authors we want to work with and how valuable and how valued they are in the editor's eyes. Like we are willing to like risk our livelihoods to help make your book be real. Yeah. But in terms of editorial risk, it's just, I guess, having your pulse, you know, on what you see happening in the book world, but also it it really comes down to the text itself. If you read something, and even if you don't see it being reflected anywhere else in the market or the industry, and you're like, no, like, this is my risk. Like, um, I remember, and this is like, <laughs> yeah, Megan Tingley. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right, for, for, for Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, mm-hmm. like, She, she has, she described it as like, I had the, the tingly tingle. I don't know what that means, but she's, you know, she was like saying like in the 20 plus years I've acquired books. I've only had this like, you know, a couple of times. And I was reading like twilight on a plane ride. And I felt that feeling. And then she's like, this is it. And she bought the book and she dramatically like, edited in a brilliant, brilliant way. But yeah, but like editors get those feelings and that's sometimes those feelings fail. Yeah. I
2: think one of the things is to go a bit off of Diana talking about how editors risk their jobs or you really risk, it's your reputation really because I think within the industry, especially when it comes to editors and agents and even publicists, you know who are the rainmakers pretty clearly. Like, you know who's, if they're an agent, you know whose books sell really fast. You know who, if you're an editor, you know whose books get a lot of attention, who's, who's repeatedly buying those like successes. And so a lot of it's based on your reputation, but I think every editor knows in terms of risk is like how many risks can I take at any given time? And a lot of times it's like you buy a stuff stuff for me, you buy things that are, you know, that you know are appeal to your, are really interesting, but will also appeal to your core market. But every so often there's a book that comes in and you're like, there's something about the voice. There's something about the characters. There's something about the way the presentation is that just feels like this is a risk, but it is so worth it. I tend to respond when I'm, (laughs) I say it's like when something starts to like live in me, like I read a manuscript that I ended up, acquiring, that is risky, but I was quoting the characters as I was walking around the house, like the voice had infused itself so far into me off of just reading the first hundred pages that I was like, I have to buy this book. If it's, if it's connecting with me, this much if it's if it's like living inside my head as I'm doing other things then this is something I think is worth taking a risk on and it's hard to take a risk on things um, that you're like you just have to read it because a lot of times you can't get people to read it and so you're like if you just read if you just look at my baby just please it's so pretty. (laughs) Um, But I think with things like that, when you can see the writing and you can see the passion and you can really see the voice, which I think is one of those, and people may disagree with me, voice is one of those things that's really hard to teach. Like um, I think it's one of those innate skills that writers have or that they develop on their own. And then you know you have to go to fight for it. And a lot of times it takes stepping back and really thinking about doing all the work you can to figure out how you're gonna present it to the team because you know it's gonna be a risk and lots of coaching in house of like, okay, so I need you to say this in acquisitions, just like this, if he asks this question. But yeah, I think I think if you fall in love with it so deeply and you can actually see a plan for it, that's when you have to take the risk. And then you have to go to the work from there and that means going to work, being a super advocate with your marketers, a super advocate with your sales reps, you have to, those are the ones you kind of have to work harder for, even if you know that it has everything there, because it's not as easily definable And it can, well, one of the risks can be that it's not as easily definable in the market. And that's usually where a lot of the editorial risks come from. Um, it's like, Oh, it's, it's, it's cross genre or, you know, it's doing horror before now. And everyone is like, we don't do horror. It's, it's, it's being the taste maker before the trend has caught up. That's kind of how I see it.
0: This might be a bit of a tangent, but you say you have to be a super advocate to like the marketing team. So how much of a role as an editor do you typically have in influencing Mm -hmm. the ultimate like marketing plan?
2: depends it's definitely a dialogue you definitely can push and it can sway like there's there's a perception um probably before they've read the whole manuscript that can kind of change once they've read it because they they have a better sense of it you can kind of tweak it all you all I can do is say this is what I want this is what the author is envisioning and kind of how work to meld those two things, a lot of it is just asking, what can we do? How can we position this? What do I need to do? Or what can I do as the editor to kind of help facilitate this? We're very involved in the planning process. A lot of it is, I'm not a marketer. So a lot of it is deferring to, I have people on my team who have been in publishing longer than I have. So have years and years and years of very excellent science fiction and fantasy marketing experience. So a lot of it's deferring to them and if i see something i like going to them and be like oh riverhead did this riverhead's a very different publisher but they have very lovely digital marketing um Mm -hmm. and so you're looking at stuff from other houses and you're like oh they did this what about this idea i'd love i work on a very small team orbit small and so i it's one of my favorite things aspects about It's just, it's having a conversation. I'd like to see more of this. Do we have room to do more? If you don't know your team well, and you are not, you should, (laughs) that's like, number one is make friends with your team. And two is always ask questions. And sometimes they're like, no, we can't do this. But if you're not asking, if you're not checking in, if you're not looking at it and thinking of it yourself, then you're going to get caught down the line and be like, well, what happened? why didn't we do X? Well, you didn't push. You're the, you're basically, you're the project manager. Sometimes things can't happen if you don't ask.
1: That's, that's pretty, that's my take on it. Yeah. And, and also, you know, for those listeners out there, like both of us come from like big five publishing experiences. So, you know, you might get different thoughts if you work at, you know, a smaller press or an academic press, you know, or a digital media based company for, yeah. So I definitely agree with like everything that you've just said, Nivia, one of the key aspects about big five traditional publishing is that it's a lot of different levers and gears you have to pull in order to make things work in order to make sure all the pieces fall into place correctly um, for Serial box you know we're, we're a small team like the entire company is like smaller than tours editorial department was which i find very you know fascinating it was such a it's such a new and refreshing um environment to be in because you know i have experienced like talking to like different teams all the time making sure you know the same message comes across making sure everyone's on the same page uh, and at serialbox it just feels so much easier because I don't have to like talk to like a bazillion different people to make sure this one aspect of a plan falls into place you know um, it's much more collaborative than I've you know had in the past too, which I find also very refreshing but yeah but being able to, present a plan to your marketing and publicity teams uh, is so key. One of the things I always think about is that one, for people who don't know, when sales reps do calls, they typically spend 30 seconds, you know, for a pitch on their book when they're on call. So because they're pitching, you know, and this is speaking from like, traditional large scale publishing because they're probably selling in like hundreds of titles in a single hour to a bookseller, you know? So it's not just like a single hour for your, all your genre titles, like all your genre titles might get all of five minutes, Mm -hmm. you know? And this is like selling books for the entire season. So like your entire fall list, one hour, all your sci-fi books, five minutes. And so knowing this, uh, it's really, really helpful to have, a message to your team that hits all of your, your hooks, your big hooks that you know your your bookseller will be fascinated by. But it also has to be repeatable and memorable. Uh, so if you don't have those three things, have it be repeatable, memorable, and that hook, it's gonna be harder for your sales rep on that call. Uh, another thing that I think about a lot is how much time it actually takes for a sales rep to read some, something. And during this call, like the game changer is when the rep tells the bookseller and I read it and I loved it. That is like the, the sweet spot. So if you can convince like your sales team, like super early, because you have the manuscript ready, because you kept raving about it every single meeting, because you emailed this, sp- particular person being like i know that you really love like historical fantasy Mm -hmm. i just bought this it's like you got to read this now i know you'll love it like getting their um enthusiasm super early will help set up your book for the long term
2: Mm -hmm. i think we underestimate sometimes how simply just how long the tail is to like really build something. And then I think it goes against a lot of like our natural editorial instincts because we're like, well, it's not ready yet. I just need to edit it a little bit more and then I'll send it to you. But I think we kind of, we underestimate the fact that if you loved it, in this form and you send it to like one or two reps that you know really loves that genre, they'll see the potential in it that you saw too before you like try to like hound everyone else with a much more polished version of it. But that like everything Diana says is 100% accurate. And it's also why I know, I see a lot of readers get so annoyed when it's like, why are they saying it's like Game of Thrones meets X or (laughs) Black Panther meets (laughs) X. And it's because we're trying to get this in people's heads like our reps heads so quickly is like this is the tone, take it, run with it, tell everyone you know you have 30 seconds. That's why, that's why you see those those kind of comparisons or you see other like book comps in presented in like sales hooks and strap lines is it's a very specific tactic to get people to immediately understand where you're placing this book.
0: So this might be a brief sidebar, but I know like a lot of times when authors are querying agents or sometimes directly editors, they're asked to include these book comps as well. Do you think that it's the right approach to take the same kind of book comps or As like if you're trying to mass appeal and market something or do you narrow focus in because I know if you have the two perfect most correct book comps in the world they might be books that most people have never heard of before right because they didn't have like the massive market appeal Uh, but I mean everyone these days could potentially say it's like Game of Thrones but something else
2: okay I will say (laughs) I'm not allowed to use Game of Thrones (laughs) <laughs> as a, as a comp. It's, it's too it's too big it's too it's too much of an outlier um so for retail focus things you can like like consumer focus face things you can use that kind of comp but in-house It's like a very surface level thing, but once you get dig deep into it in terms of like preparing for acquisition and actually having the conversation with sales there, it's not a realistic comp because it's just sold too many copies. It has a TV show. It's too big. And so you start to shrink, you move away from all of those things that are like, it's, you're not going with your Joe Abercrombie comps, even if it's like perfect you're gonna come down to something that's more realistic for a mid-list author or like a debut author. And even then, and within like the last two or three years, because that's more of an indication of like where the market is going with these kinds of books. And I think people get really, and we do it too, like in-house, we get too tied up in the fact that like, this isn't the perfect comp. It's it's more of a thing to indicate, comps are to indicate market and general readership. Um, sometimes you want to, you do want to nail like similar tones you don't want to compare like a light-hearted fantasy with a grim dark because those aren't quite like even if there's overlap that's not the same you're not positioning it the same so you're thinking of it more like well if someone was doing a book club or if someone was doing like a themed shelf would my who would my book sit on the shelf with more than anything and so I'm more than happy If people are pulling together comps and they want a top level, like, oh, it's political fantasy in the vein of Game of Thrones or, you know, that kind of thing. But when you drill down to like very useful comps that tells, you know, your agent or your editor that, you know, the market or you've looked into where your book is, I would leave God tier alone and start looking at the (laughs) listers and um, because that's just more accurate. And you you'll find more range too than trying to be like, I mean, if you're the next George R.R. Martin, we'll know. Trust me, I'll 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 figure it out and then I'll be in an auction and very angry about it. <laughs>
1: uh yeah, and, and also uh when authors talk about comps, there there is actually different ways that comps are used. So I don't want authors to sound like stress out like a lot being like, my query letter didn't have the right comps. When you when you choose comps for like a query letter specifically to send to an agent, you know, the reason why you have those comps is to get their foot in the door to actually read those first 10 pages. So it is helpful to have, you know, as Nevia said, like books that are closer in genre and theme and writing voice to your manuscript. And then the agent will like take those comps and then add a couple of different comps that mm-hmm. like have sales numbers attached to them. Cause they know those facts, you know, and then they'll take in those are the types of comps. They'll present it when they pitch it to editors and then editors will buy the book and then they'll think of new comps. It could be the same comps that you've already talked about, but then you, but then you've got to go like, uh, one level, like broader, mm-hmm. you know, And those are like the sales comps you tell your sales team and your publisher and your marketing team. And those might have, you know, different types of comps because they're in-house books and not out of house because that helps those teams actually accurately compare you know, how they're going to strategize a book because they already have the hard sales numbers. So those comps in-house are like, could be completely different than the ones that you would, would have seen like at the query stage and the ones that you've seen at the agent pitching stage, but they're all still relevant.
0: Yeah. Before we move on, I have one last potential misconception that I want to ask y'all about. So I know sometimes readers will be like, oh, well, this author, they're just too big to edit right like they obviously no one edited them is that something that's actually the case or i guess i'll just open the floor (laughs) to you to discuss that
1: (laughs) i like how you're like looking in the distance i'm like so. I, mean, I think it could be like subjective in different ways sure. uh, of how that's handled. But I think what commonly does happen more often than not is that for certain big name authors, the publisher wants to guarantee that the book hits a certain sales date, you know, and they don't have their readership wait too long because they already know it's going to be the big seller that helps, you know, get hit their budget numbers for this year. So they have to be able to get the book out. They have to make it a bestseller. Best, best um you know, but then there could be situations, for example, that the book comes late, you know, the author had stuff going on, maybe they had writer's block, maybe they like were going through a lot of their stuff in their life, you know, and the book comes late and that happens, life happens, you know what I mean? But the book still has to make the sales date because the sales team already sold it into the bookseller and the booksellers are like, everyone's expecting the book by this date, like got hit it. This. Yeah. And so in situations like that, I've seen it more, you know, you know, fairly often with big name authors is that sometimes, you know, copy edits get rushed through because they just want to make the pub date, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and then oversights happen. Like everyone, like we definitely try to be as detail oriented, um, as possible and making sure that we have a quality story out there you know but that's oftentimes when you when you get that first print book of a big you know doorstopper book and you're like why are there so many typos like there's yeah. m- like did they not edit this book I'm like yeah it was edited but also it was we a crash. had like <laughs> it was a crash title we had like 2 months to bring it out and that yeah. is like super short for your production team mm-hmm. you
2: know <laughs> and and to be honest and to be direct as some authors kind of grow in name and brand, their kind of authorial vision becomes very, very defined. They have a gate. And I think all authors like this, they have a very clear sense of what that book should be. But I, you can't deny the fact that once you become a big name, you have more leverage as an author to be like, no, this is just how it's going to be. And even then you can have a conversation with your editor and they can press. And this happens with all authors. If you have a conversation mm-hmm. with your editor, and you're really insistent that something has to remain the same, unless it's huge, like a big plot problem or a plot error, we're going to defer to you, hands Mm -hmm. down, um, because it's your book. And so it, it can seem like, oh, editors kind of run over, you know, smaller authors, while, you know, authors, you know, like, like I call them God tier, um, can kind of do whatever they want, but it's it's you're leveraging, oh, how long and taking in schedule, like Diana says, how long do I have time to kind of go back and forth? If they're not going to change their mind, that's fine. You kind of have to just take it as fine, this is what it is. Let's move forward. And (laughs) there is like kind of like a little bit of like a a silly part of us that like reads reviews after. And if someone points it out, you're kind of like, mm-hmm. well, that's what I said. You should have listened to me. But it's all very small. And I like I, I keep saying, it's an author's book. You're just here to facilitate a vision. You're here to faci- help make sure it's, you know, it it gets to readers and the book sells books and is profitable. So the author can continue to have a career because I think at the end of the day, we look at it like, Oh, it's just us and publishing in our career. No, every book sold is another building block in an author's career. At the end of the day, you want to be able to buy another book from that author and make sure they have like a long running career and that they can look at it as they've grown from debut to midlister to hopefully, you know, God tier level or just like a very steady midlister. You never want to do something that harms an author so that they don't like two years from now, their books don't sell and no one wants to pick them up anymore. And they essentially have killed their career. So yeah, that was, I've circled around back to something else, but. <laughs>
0: So I do want to branch into a slightly different topic, and I'm curious uh, if there's just like one thing you wish all the writers you work with would do, or like what are the most common things that you really wish writers would know to do when working with editors?
2: Um, You can say no, like, (laughs) which is, it's in the same thing. It was just like, sometimes that's a trap. But I think if you really have an issue with something, um, a comment your editors made or a change they'd like to see, talk to them like actually have a conversation with your with your editor they're not here to like ruin anything they're not here to take over it is literally have a conversation some of my favorite editorial experiences have been when i have long running conversations in the track changes about like here's a comment and then it's it's like six rounds deep of us going back and forth about this one thing and at the end you're like oh this this is great this works out because I keep saying it's the editorial process is a dialogue just like the author is presenting something to a reader it's kind of a one-sided dialogue but now in the in the in the age of social media you get a lot more interactions between authors and readers and stuff like that and not every time like it's not like the author can take a reader's feedback and be like oh yeah I'm gonna go change that but (laughs) it's, Mm -hmm. it's it's this this constant communication that's going on. And I wish I, I see this a lot. Like I said, with misconceptions, all this anxiety and concern, it's like, we're not, we love these books. We're here to kind of make it work. Just, just have the conversation. Also, if your books under a hundred thousand words, make it longer. If your books over 170,000 words, make it shorter. This is my, this is my demand. (laughs)
1: Wow, you're really pressing those word counts as someone who buys novellas. I'm like it all depends. It all depends on what you need. but I but I am really like, you know, it's so funny too because it's I, I definitely. That's probably the reason why I never bought like the epic fantasy for tour. Cause I just didn't want to edit that 200,000 word novel. Yeah. Diana, <laughs> can I tell you the last several
2: manuscripts I've gotten in from my authors have all been over 200,000 words. And I just sit there and I'm like, I think you guys hate me. I like, I love you so much, but you're out to get me. And they're all so good. But at some point I'm like, this book is long. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, oh my gosh. Um, but to answer your question, Travis, uh, yeah, I uh, definitely co sign. Communication is key. Um, you know, and, and also just be like, just be mindful about deadlines. And it's okay if you can't hit a deadline, just tell your editor like in advance if something comes up, like as soon as you know, just like let me know so I can tell everyone else because we're just essentially. It, you can reschedule something. You can shuffle around deadlines. Just don't give us surprises that we didn't expect. Uh, and also, I guess, like, another thing is just, like, you know, and this is what I tell authors all the time on panels that even before you publish a book, even when you're just thinking about your career, um, just have like an honest conversation with yourself about what your expectations are. Like everyone has a book inside them, but not everyone has like a New York Times bestseller book inside them. Uh, you know, and just having like a practical, like, you know, set of expectations, like, why are you writing this book? Is it you know, because it's the book of your heart, which is great. Is it because you want a book to give to your family and friends? You know, is it a book that wants to establish like a steady mid career? Or do you want to go and try to like get that New York Times bestseller? Like there's different publishing strategies to hit every one of those goals, but you have to, as a writer, you have to really think to yourself, like, is that the type of writer I really want to be? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So
2: that's definitely one of the, questions I have um, I ask my authors when we first start working together is like what would make this book a success to you because that can look like anything and there are clear success markers to the industry like you know New York Times bestsellers selling a hundred thousand copies but like what would honestly make you feel like oh this was all worth it and that can take different forms mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so another thing I want to hit on, because we've talked about this a few times, is talking about market and market trends. So I'm curious, are there any trends you're currently noticing within, I guess, the broad arena of speculative fiction? Any predictions you have on how it'll go or ways that you wish it would go?
2: I think the big one for me is the gothic trend that has kind of taken us all over. And it's like adjacent to the horror trend that's been bubbling up, but I'm still waiting to see how it's going to go. But more of those not as quite body horror, but more psychological Gothic books I've been seeing more of. And it's and it's especially more of now that Mexican Gothic has hit so big. I think a lot of people have felt really encouraged about taking that route. That's one of the big ones for me. What about you, Diana? What are you saying?
1: Yeah. Um, so I always preamble this question by saying that like stuff you see like out on the shelves now had been bought two to three years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you hear answers, don't suddenly think like, Oh no, like I have to write this like now or to sell it because that was what people were writing, was writing like five, six years ago. Um, so don't stress out if you're not hitting the trend. Uh (laughs) but also, uh, you know, I definitely agree. I, I have a soft spot for horror and dark fantasy, and that's something that I've been really excited to buy for Cereal Box especially. Um, I was also one of the people that helped organize Nightfire at Tor. So, like, seeing it that, like, the next wave, um, you know, of dark fantasy and horror and gothic is just super exciting to me and to, like, my 16-year-old self that was, like, pretended to run across the moors and dressed all in black and... (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but uh i think it also speaks to like today's you know um anxiety uh and pressure we think the world is burning down and we kind of find solace in having fiction reflect that because at least we can control the narrative mm-hmm. in some way um i've you know i've also thought about uh in terms of format like you know i and and you know this might be biased because now i work in audio fiction but You know, but audio fiction has been on the rise, you know, for the past five years, and it's just jumped because of the pandemic and everyone's at home um, and has more time to listen to podcasts and audio dramas and serialized fiction uh, and short stories and fiction form, you know, in, in audio form. And having, seeing that wave is just super, super fascinating to me as someone who's still like learning about that aspect of the market, but had always Known it existed tangentially throughout much of my career, and then now being plunged into it. It's a really fascinating world. It's a world that I think writers can take advantage of uh, just because, you know, to sell you can sell shorter pieces for like a pretty good chunk of money because it translates well into audio, you know? Um and I'll, and I think like writers are suddenly grasping that. Like I could get a faster paycheck if I have like a right, the right length of a, you know, novelette or novella, because I know that still equals like four to five hours of listening time and worth the price of purchase to a reader, you know what I mean? Um, I also am really fascinated by like, and, and this is kind of like fascinated in a pro, but also Conway about the rise of franchising and, brand, and branding when it comes to science fiction fantasy. Like everyone gets excited about Star Wars, Disney owns everything now. What does this mean with the world? But then again, like if a writer gets, you know, gets that like media tie in, uh, you know, for Marvel or Star Wars or DC or whatever, it makes their career in an entirely different way. Um, So I definitely think that writers are contemplating writing for IP now more than ever because of that. Which
2: it's so funny because I'm probably one of the very, few people who actually work in science fiction and fantasy who could is not heavily invested in star wars or marvel or any of it so i'm always kind of like yay that's special but i have seen it work really well with an author debuting where they did ip for alien aliens one of them both of them Um, (laughs) which really established them as a voice and then their debut novel came out a few months later and so they already kind of had some name recognition that we could build off of but that's also true that you don't need that to kind of establish a career you could be a true debut, but it's also another avenue to kind of really build from there. I think IP is taking off in a really interesting way, just outside of franchise, but more and more authors getting their start with book packages and mm-hmm. houses coming to them because they've read their novellas or their short stories. And like, we have a great way, like we have a great project. We think you're, you know, really exciting person to work with. Are you interested? I think that is something that is starting to really grow legs. And because it's coming from the publisher, there's a lot of like already like market knowledge built into it. And so you see books hit the market just stronger and better. So you're really building someone's name uh, a little bit quicker.
0: Any final thoughts before we wrap things up? This has been such an excellent discussion so far, but obviously there's only so much we can cover in just an hour or so of time about editing your careers, the industry.
1: Is this a time where we can plug ourselves? Because yeah, let's I do that. Yeah, do
0: that. so I definitely want to give you the chance to plug yourself. So, where can people find you online? What do you have to plug about yourselves?
1: Uh, so, um, you know, for those are interested in learning more about Serial Box, just go to serialbox.com. The first episode of all of our long-form stories could be listened to for free. Uh, so, I definitely recommend that people check it out and see what we're all about. Um, I am actually currently acquiring uh, original novellas and short novels, you know, ideally between 20 to 70,000 words. Um, pay attention to that word count now. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm definitely interested in hearing from agents who have authors or authors who have novellas. Uh, if people are interested, you know, um, I, I will never do this typically, but I'll do it just as once because it's a single podcast and I'm sure I won't get my inbox flooded. But for those lucky listeners out there, you can email me at diana at serialbox.com if you're interested in submitting. Tricky, tricky.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs> um, okay, so you can find
2: me on Twitter at Nivea Evans. Orbit has wonderful books always sign up for our the orbit newsletter because we do deals and highlight all of our new books and coming up. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll always see me talking about any new book I (laughs) new books I have coming out. One of them um I'm really excited about is coming out in May and it's called Son of the Storm by Sui Davies Okumbawa, which is a really exciting epic fantasy lots of classic tropes in a West African world. It's amazing. Um, I acquire science fiction and fantasy. I'm partial to fantasy more than anything. And I acquire speculative fiction. So magical realism, I'm throwing air quotes about it because we don't use it properly, but it's more like magic (laughs) in a real world crossover stuff. Um, I don't take unagented submissions unless I approach you because I'm very sneaky on the Twitter. Um, (laughs) But I love talking to people. So if you want, you could always DM me. I love doing informationals and having chats. So that's me.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic Uh, and I do want to plug for both of you as well. I think you're both uh, eligible for best long form editor in the Hugos this year. I'm not exactly sure when the nominations period for that is.
1: Yes, that is also true. So if you happen to have a voting membership, um, you know, feel free to consider us both. I also have a Twitter. It's writer syndrome, one word, and pinned at the top of my Twitter is a post that talks about everything I'd edited in 2020, which does qualify me for the Hugos. I don't do that. I didn't do that,
2: (laughs) but I'm also qualified. (laughs) I had some great books come out in 2020.
0: Fantastic. Um, and I hope everyone does nominate you both. Um, well, Diana, Nivea, thank you both so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and share some of your editing expertise with us. This has been so lovely.
1: Yeah, thank you again so much for having us. Thank you, Travis. It was great to receive that email from you.